This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Jolly. Now, last week, Theo Bircham suggested on the podcast that we set up a museum of political hubris, which would include the Ed Stone, Nick Clegg's Carly Rae Jepsen video, Dave the Chameleon, and on Polly McKenzie's suggestion, there'll be only bacon sandwiches in the cafe. Well, loads of you sent in suggestions. Uh, Matt Wargan wants to see top hats in the crude by-election. John Gummer's beef burger and Labour's ridiculous fire up the Quattro posters from 2010. Several people, including Tony Lunt and Kath Hinton, went for Neil Kinnock's We're All Right. Sheffield Valley. Tony Jebson wants a David Still go back to your constituents to prepare for government display. Somebody called Narproxen on Twitter wants a field of wheat exhibit. Chris Brooks went for uh, Labour Live. Trevor Field just said he just put Matt Hancock in it. And finally, Jenny Parks wanted fruitcake in the cafe, but no loonies or closet racists. Uh, keep those coming. Email redbox at thetimes.co.uk. So, to this week, we've been asking you to send in your questions about the election and we've had absolutely loads. So, we're going to try and answer as many as we can in today's episode here to take on the task of at least attempting to answer your questions times political correspondent henry zeffman katie perio is a former spin doctor to theresa may and boris johnson and pollster matt singh from number cruncher politics best of luck everybody we'll be giving you mark <laughs> awarding marks as we go along uh, no messing about let's get down to it and this first question is from anthony reed is boris johnson piling up votes in the wrong seats as in seats where he's already destined to win them and secondly, the falling vote share of Labour, having peaked at 40% in 2017, where is that vote going and how do you think it will be dispersed over the election? Matt, this feels like a question for the pollster on the panel. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, so to some extent, he is getting votes in the wrong places. It's it's not like some points in the recent past, such as during the, the new Labour era where the Conservative vote was horrendously poorly distributed but what's happened this time is because of the brexit party standing down in conservative held seats that's basically gifted the conservatives a number of votes in a lot of places where they're actually not much used to them so there are some places like for example the seats that they're defending from liberal democrats even though the lib dems are are running on a remain platform the brexit party costing conservatives leave voters could have hurt the Conservatives there, so that they're gaining there. And, and similarly in, in Scotland against the SNP, because the parts of Scotland with the Tory seats are the, the more Brexity by Scottish standards areas. That said, 
it's probably if you're looking at the the effect on the swing, it, it's maybe a point or two. I mean, I, I think John Curtis was saying, look at the the lead, the Tory lead, as if it were maybe one or two points smaller. Not you know, we're not talking five points. So it, it is happening to some extent, yes, uh, but not massively. In terms of where it's going, it isn't all going to one place. The Remainers are going to the Lib Dems and some to the Greens. The Leavers are going uh, to the Tories and some to the Brexit Party. Uh, but it's not uh, it's not an election where, where the, everyone's going in the same direction. While we're talking about Labour, Henry, we should probably talk about um, anti-Semitism uh, because you had the scoop in the Times, this uh, piece from the Chief Rabbi, an absolutely extraordinary. I mean, you know, people have said this: that the word "unprecedented" is overused in politics, but unprecedented for uh, the chief rabbi to essentially intervene in the election like this. Yes, it is, and I think. Well, I know that weighed very heavily on him and his team before he decided to do so. So the fact that he did decide to do so is certainly a big moment, which ought to give many people within the Labour Party and without the Labour Party pause for thought. If we are, I mean, we are talking here sort of electorally. So, you know, does this matter electorally? The crude reality of how many British Jews there are and where they live is that no, probably not. There's a very small handful of seats, uh, but they're already pretty complicated and they're already overwhelmingly not going to be voting for the Labour Party, although many of them were won by the Labour Party for many years. But... The Labour Party's pitch in this election, and more particularly Jeremy Corbyn's pitch in this election, is that contrasted with Boris Johnson, who they portray as a political gadfly and as an opportunist and a man who himself has said many questionable things about certain minorities, Jeremy Corbyn, they want to say, is a man of irredeemable principle of uh, unrelenting anti-racism and basically uh, a a better voice for the oppressed. Uh, So... This, at the very least, hinders the Labour Party's ability for a few days to make that message convincingly, and that will have consequences or could have consequences across the country. Katie, one of the things when we've talked about anti-Semitism on the podcast before is in recent weeks, pollsters, focus group people, that sort of thing, uh, have said that this has started coming up. Voters, in a way that it didn't get cut through in 2017, this sense that even if people don't totally understand the issue or think it's not really something for them, this sense that Jeremy Corbyn might not be the nice man, the the, the sort of magic grandpa that they portrayed him in 2017, is starting to have an impact. I mean, this time last year, it was was front page news in many newspapers about some of the things that Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonald have said in the past. And so it's taken quite a long time. But I do think, um, you know, if I go back to the London mayoral race with Boris Johnson, one of the things that Ken Livingston tried to do and absolutely failed at doing is trying to make Boris Johnson appear nasty. Uh, I don't think members of the public, they might think that he chooses the wrong language. They may think he's careless. but They don't think he's nasty. And I think that actually... They possibly couldn't apply the same thing to Jeremy Corbyn and his team around him. There is certainly something about him that he has not managed to shake this off. He has not managed to clearly... Maybe it took too long for him uh, in the beginning to come out and say, no, 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 this is not me, this is not what this party represents. He's allowed people in his party over a number of months and years to hold those views and not face any kind of real punishment. And I think that sticks. It'll be amazing to see how this um, pans out because it's such an extraordinary... And when you've got the Archbishop of Canterbury weighing in to support the Chief Rabbi for intervening in an election, um, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. But we have got loads of questions to get through, so let's move on. Uh, this is Claire Laxton. Hi, Matt and the Times Redbox team. My name's Claire Laxton and I'm from a little village near Newark in Nottinghamshire. My question about the campaign is, will the Remain Alliance actually affect the final result in some seats? And if so, what seats... 
It seems like we come to you first, Matt. (laughs) That's another one for you. Where it's going to have an effect is primarily in the seats where the Conservatives would otherwise be narrowly beating the Liberal Democrats. Um, and I, there are one or two others where there's possibly in Wales with with Plaid uh, and the Conservatives in a close race. It, essentially, it's it, because this Remain alliance that we're talking about is is an alliance primarily between the Liberal Democrats, the Greens, and and, and Plaid. Um, the alliance that would have had a much bigger impact would have involved Labour uh, and also the SNP. Obviously, that that has not happened. So it may have a a decisive impact in the sorts of seats that are in that category. And it is a little bit difficult to say because it's a very specific battleground that hasn't been polled that much. But it's 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 that sort of seat. Henry, in a way, the, the, it's the Leave Alliance which is having a bigger impact, isn't it? The, although, the, you know, if the Lib Dems are trying to take a seat away from the Tories, the Tories have just had an advantage if the Brexit Party have stood down there. Although, of course, the Conservatives would have loved even more for Nigel Farage to stand down in seats such as Bolsover or Bassett Law, long-standing Labour seats, which the Conservatives wanted to win under Theresa May and didn't quite manage to, but which Boris Johnson's dreams of a multi-dozen seat Tory majority rely on winning. But there's also, I suppose, even though the Brexit Party hasn't stood down in lots of those seats, uh, or in lots of seats, there is a kind of cognitive effect on voters as well as the the sort of electoral ploy made by Nigel Farage, which is that some voters, even in seats that weren't won by the Conservatives last time, might look at Nigel Farage's decision to stand down. And as a result, the sort of diminished publicity which the Brexit Party has got since then and go, ah, okay, maybe the Brexit Party isn't that much of a force. I've heard lots more about the Conservative Party. Uh, Even Nigel Farage seems to think that, you know, they are the, the lesser of the evils and will deliver Brexit. So probably I should just get over myself and vote for them. That is what the Conservative Party will be hoping happens in seats beyond those that the Brexit Party has decided to stand down in. I mean, I certainly think that there's a couple of things at play as well that we just don't know. Uh, what's going to happen. 2.8 million people have registered to vote since the election was announced and uh, a million of those are under the age of 35. Are they necessarily Boris lovers? Are they necessarily going to go towards the Conservative Party? Um, anyway, and I think They're also probably, as we quite often find, a lot of them were already on the electoral register. It's like, yes. a, it's like a thing that you do before the election, you re-register to vote again. But, but did, had they voted recently? Yeah. Have they voted before? Did they vote uh, in the European elections? You know, it's very hard to, to predict whether those votes are going to go. But also, I do think that there is something in... Um, those individual candidates that have had publicity, such as Dominic Grieve and a couple of others, that may uh, we might find something unusual happening in, in those seats that are, you know, kind of buck the trend. OK, uh, let's move on. Uh, this one uh, now about the Prime Minister himself. This is Mike Smith. I just wanted to know if the Conservative Party won an overall majority, but Boris Johnson lost his own seat in Uxbridge, would he still be the Prime Minister? Is he even still allowed in the House of Commons? We're all laughing. Because <laughs> it's just, you know, crazy, isn't it? Politics is so crazy at the moment. Could it get any, any worse? There's a few people who asked this question, actually. So uh, we should explain that Boris has got a majority of about 5,000 in Uxbridge, which is the slimmest for a sitting prime minister for donkey's years. as a sort <laughs> of the te- technical term. Technical term. But, Henry, so what happens if Boris Johnson loses his seat but the Tories win the election? I think it's worth saying that it is very hard to conceive of though Boris Johnson's seat absolutely is marginal and you could lose it it is very hard to conceive of a scenario where the Conservatives do well enough nationwide for him to win a majority but simultaneously bad enough in Uxbridge which isn't a sort of massively Remain seat for example 
uh, that he loses that seat. But let's suppose he does. Well, I mean, he'd be allowed in the parliamentary estate, but no, he wouldn't be allowed in the House of Commons because he wouldn't be an MP. He'd be allowed to go and clear his desk. It, well, quite. He would have a former MP's pass. Um, so there is sort of limited precedent for cabinet ministers losing their seats. I think, and I'm going to be corrected by Twitter if I'm wrong, but I think Peter Walker or something, Patrick Walker maybe, uh, something Walker was Harold Wilson's shadow foreign secretary, uh, lost his seat uh, in the election, which nevertheless brought in a Wilson government. Uh, Wilson managed to appoint him foreign secretary anyway, despite him not being in parliament at the time. Uh, he contested a by-election, lost that by-election, which obviously became a big national moment. Uh, and at that point... Um, Wilson and, and uh, Mr. Walker decided the game was up, and uh, Patrick, Patrick Patrick Walker, Walker we can uh, and and, uh, and he and he stood down uh, as foreign secretary. I don't think you can get away with doing that with the prime minister. The prime minister has to be subject to parliamentary scrutiny. So, uh, I mean, I don't know. It'd be properly unprecedented in pure ranking terms. Dominic Raab is the first secretary of state, so if he manages to hold off the, uh, well, the so there is Democrats, a problem. So, so it, there is a scenario where Boris Johnson could lose his seat. And so could Dominic Raab, who's essentially... Well, the Queen the has to invite... My understanding of it, though, this really would be uncharted. And, you know, as we have learned over the last couple of years, the Constitution, uh, you know, is what happens. Uh, and, and we'd be hearing lots in that scenario about the Queen's private secretary and the golden triangle of advisers who decide what on earth to do. Uh, but the Queen would have to invite someone to form a government. And if Boris Johnson is not in Parliament... Matt Chorley uh, would get forward. Be him. <laughs> <laughs> um, I understand... Hang on, why is that funny? You always stop laughing at the idea. I mean, could I be any worse than the uh, last few years? I just ignored it. I'd look forward to the first speech in Downing Street. That would yeah. be... Uh, well, I just promised to, to make it all go back to normal. Well, the first thing to go would be Larry the Cat. I can't yeah. stand cats. <laughs> Poor Larry. <laughs> Couldn't Boris make himself a lord? Become... Yes. yeah. Uh, and govern yeah. that way. Oh, you know, that'd go down well with the people, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, really well. Lord Johnson of Uxbridge. Yes. And, and isn't there something about the fact that then the Conservative Party would have to uh, go through another internal election to get a new leader? And in the meantime, Graham Brady, as chair of 1922, possibly could have a role there. Although he might stand <laughs> aside again and then also not run, as he did last time. Caretaker PM, maybe? I suppose Boris Johnson could appoint himself a lord instantly mm-hmm. become prime minister from the lords but declare his immediate intention to contest a by-election get a tory mp to stand down in his favor and when he won that by-election in presumably some safe tory seat he would then renounce his peerage thanks to tony ben and uh, <laughs> um, go back into the commons that wouldn't look at all dodge would it no 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 absolutely not well, i think the answer to the question for mike and nigel and all the other people who asked this question is um, it would be incredibly complicated but as things stand we don't think it's going to happen yeah i mean the the probability of both of those things happening as henry says is is extremely small i mean it, it, conservatives winning majority and johnson losing his seat it's it's they're not likely both to happen together i also think we should say i don't think it has ever happened regardless of the broader election result of the day sitting prime minister has lost their seat in the uk john yes. howard the australian prime minister yep. lost his seat when he was running for and re-election I in 2007 believe kim campbell in canada in right 90- oh that's right that's yep. right almost all she her party lost almost all, their all seats. but two seats mm-hmm. yeah Okay, let's move on. Uh, Let's look across the Irish Sea with a question from Patrick Pinkerton. I'm originally from Belfast, but I've lived in England all my adult life. So I'm quite used to the ways in which the media over here on what we've called the mainland tends to, how shall I put it, marginalise Northern Irish politics. So I'd just be interested to hear uh, your take on the podcast on 
while the electoral campaign is going over in Northern Ireland. Matt, you're probably a better watcher of these things. Part of the reason why it is, in quotes, marginalised is because none of the parties that stand in the rest of the UK stand in Northern Ireland. So it's sort of slightly treated as an entirely different spectacle, which is yeah. of only then of interest to people in Northern Ireland. Yeah, I think the Tories are standing four candidates in Northern Ireland, but they're, they're probably all going to lose their deposits. So it's, it, it, it is a, um, an entirely separate set of uh, elections. And uh, for the same reason, pollsters often, uh, they may sometimes include Northern Ireland in the UK sample, but most polls are Great Britain only. So we do have some polling from Northern Ireland. There was one poll done right at the start of the campaign by lucid talk based in belfast what that's showing is that the alliance party which is for those not familiar with northern ireland is is the uh, cross community neither uh, unionist nor nationalist uh, party that is i guess quite lib demish very pro eu did very well in the european elections on a pro remain platform uh, and got a polling boost off the back of it they are or were at the time the poll was done, polling better than the last election, and the main parties, the DUP and Sinn Féin, were losing ground. Now, we don't know how this is going to translate in terms of seats. There was some modelling done by Kevin Cunningham based on the Lucid Talk poll, which suggested that the DUP could be dicey in in, in some seats. Certainly the, the middle-class Protestant vote, which is... You know, there's 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 quite a lot of remainers there, so possibly those things are, are a little bit dicey, but very very hard to say. And one thing that makes it even harder in Northern Ireland is that because of the nature of their politics, these these pacts and tactical voting and all the things that we're talking about in Great Britain now, as if it's new and exciting in in Northern Ireland, it's been there for donkeys years, and they're very very advanced. So that does make individual seat contests quite volatile. I believe that Lucid Talk has another poll coming up in the coming days. So uh, my advice to anyone wanting to know what's going to happen is watch this space. Henry, the, what happens in Northern Ireland obviously matters more than it maybe in previous elections, um, in part because if it's a very close result and all the Tories fall short of a majority, then they might be picking up the phone to the DUP again. It will depend on how many of them are. And also, of course, Sinn Féin, because Sinn Féin don't take their seats, so that actually affects ultimately the, how many you need for a majority. I think a really underappreciated sliding door in the Brexit story is the fact that at the 2017 general election, you got a result in Northern Ireland where of those MPs who take their seats uh, in Westminster from Northern Ireland, all but one were from the Democratic Unionist Party. Now, actually, a fair number of uh, other politicians and parties in Northern Ireland supported Theresa May's controversial Irish backstop. Uh, And Sylvia Herman, the independent unionist MP, uh, who was the only non-DUP MP sitting in the House of Commons over the last two and a bit years, uh, supported the backstop. But it was very easy for her voice and those other voices not represented in Westminster to be crowded out by the voluble DUP. This also is really crucial for understanding why Boris Johnson really needs to win a majority himself to be sure of staying in Downing Street after the general election, which obviously wasn't the case for Theresa May last time. There are, it seems very likely, there are going to be non-DUP MPs sitting in the House of Commons after the next election. Sylvia Herman is actually standing down, but in Belfast South, where Emma Little-Pengelly, a DUP MP, beat uh, Alastair MacDonald, the former SDLP, moderate constitutional nationalist party leader. Last time, I think lots of Northern Ireland watchers are expecting Claire Hanna, who's an SDLP pro-Remain uh, candidate to win there. There's no way she would end up propping up a Tory government. 
there's also a chance of one or two Ulster unionists who are more moderate and not pro-Brexit uh, than the DUP. There's a chance that they will return one or two MPs to Westminster. So you're going to get a much more diverse Northern Irish picture in Westminster. Uh, and obviously, even if, if you did just get DUP MPs back, the, the, the trust between them and the Conservative Party, and Boris Johnson in particular, is so frayed that it's not at all clear that they would go into the sim- sort of same confidence and supply arrangement with Boris Johnson as they did with Theresa May. Excellent stuff. Um, I hope that satisfies you a bit, uh, Patrick. Coming up after the break, we will talk uh, devolution, the Queen, and what's the point of rosettes and some other issues we'll try to cover as well. We're back after this short break. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast with me, Matt Shorty, joining the studio by Henry Zeffman, Katie Perrier and Matt Singh. We're answering your questions this week. This is a question from Richard Martin. Hi, Matt. I have a question about UK general elections that's always baffled me. In a UK general election, huge swathes of policy areas that the parties talk about are in devolved areas. So the UK Gov is also acting as the English government. This gets highlighted here in Wales an awful lot and also in Scotland. However, when they're on the campaign trail, the parties always talk about X number of new doctors across the country or the land or the nation, when they should simply say England, or in some cases England and Wales with regard to policemen, etc. Why is this? Are they, and I'm sorry to say this, are they frit about using the E-word? Do they not want to acknowledge that the UK government is also mostly the English government? Or would it give the impression that the UK is a sort of federal state in the making? Always strikes me as very odd that they go to such lengths to avoid it. And I'm not sure whether that's intentional or not. So a long but interesting question from Richard Martin. Lovely voice. I could listen to him all day. Listen to him all day. Uh, So, Casey, what's the answer? Why do politicians not like to talk about England? Because it is true that... (laughs) How, because, you know, t- doctors and nurses and policemen that Boris Johnson keeps talking about, it makes it sound like it's the UK and it's not, it's just England. Because they're sound bites, because you've got no time at all on the road to be able to tell people what you're thinking about, what you're offering to the nation. If you think we are Westminster geeks and nerds, we're watching stuff, we're on Twitter, we're reading stuff all the time. At home, they're getting a snippet of this election. And even when they get that, they're not that keen on it. So we don't quite know how that's going to relate to turnout. And so what's the point in having that moment on TV where the people are watching to say, just like to clarify, this is England and Wales only. Mm. And, you know, different rules apply to Scotland, etc., etc. You've got one moment. You've got to absolutely push as much as you can with your key messages. 
there's no kind of you know explanation rooms for explanation i'm afraid and the other thing to think about is that when you're making a policy announcement i mean usually that's something that you think is going to be to your advantage politically and electorally and if you sort of remind people in scotland and wales that that they they don't get the benefit from your point of view of whatever it is you're offering that's not exactly in your advantage so there may be a sort of i guess opportunistic slant to it as well but it is certainly one of these things about a in the uk that that we have the sort of asymmetric devolution where uh, certain parts of the union have a, a vastly higher degree of, of devolution than others. Uh, it's very interesting. Of course, when Boris Johnson goes to Scotland, he will remind everybody about SNP and failures. So he will make it regionalised when or devolution. And yes, when, when it suits. It suits. And yes. every time the Labour Party attack the Tories on the NHS, they say, well, you've only got to look at the NHS in, in Wales. Wales and how that's been run. Henry, do you think there's also an element of sort of union, particularly for the Conservative Party, an element of unionism that they because they they talk about Boris Johnson as running the entire UK and they don't want to cede the idea that Scotland and Wales are separate. Particularly because one of the criticisms of Brexit is that it plays into a Little Englander vision, Uh, particularly because Scotland and Northern Ireland, though not Wales, uh, voted uh, by a majority to remain. Uh, So I think the Conservative Party is loath to basically get into all that. I also think we're in danger of overestimating the extent to which any politicians think about this when <laughs> deciding how to talk about these policies as as people who have looked into the sort of devolution process initiated by Blair in the early years of his new Labour government will be aware. I mean, the, the Westminster's sort of uh, firing of the devolution starting gun can't be accused of, of being the result of an of an o- over excess of thought. Uh, <laughs> I, mean, I think I think the truth about how and the, and the, you know this is this is something that nationalists of in. Uh, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland will, I think, agree with is that Westminster has never thought about this stuff perhaps as deeply as it should have done. Uh, and, and in fact, we saw immediately after the Scottish independence referendum when Scotland voted to stay as part of the Union, David Cameron came out and just announced some English votes or English laws policy, which again didn't seem to have been overly thought through, ended up possibly causing more problems than, than it was worth. I mean, I think it's worth pointing out it's the Conservative <coughs> and Unionist Party uh, and when party members were Conservative party members were polled not that long ago, on what would they would they forego Brexit in exchange to keep the union or vice versa to be able losing, to win Brexit? Losing Scotland was a price worth paying. Yeah, well, it's yeah, yeah, not by a huge margin. And so um, I'm hoping the Conservative Party make that very clear this election. One thing I'd say about that question is that it kind of carries the inbuilt assumption that it's a trade off between the two, or that Brexit makes the breakup of the union more likely. Now a lot of people would feel that way, but it is you know there is something about the. Question. And if you're, it's if you're given a Sturgeon the opportunity, hasn't it? Oh, yes. It's given Sturgeon yes. one last go at if you're going to leave the European Union and we are staying in the UK and yet Scotland voted overwhelmingly to stay in the EU, that gives us another opportunity. That's her argument. It gives us another opportunity to go for independence. And two referendums next year and all of that, which is what Boris Johnson keeps talking about. Anyway, um, let's move on. Uh, another question, this time from Peter Butcher. I'm a lifelong Conservative voter. I also voted Remain in the referendum. I voted Liberal Democrat earlier in the year for the first time. Centrist Conservatives have just been confined to history and right-wing Brexiteers now have the centre stage. I don't want to leave the EU, so logic says I should support the Lib Dems again. I certainly don't want another referendum. On the other hand, it's important that the result of the democratic referendum should be respected. Who the hell do I vote for on the 12th of December? 
Well, there'll be lots of people asking that question. Who wants to offer Peter an art? I'm not sure there is. A, there are so many clauses to Peter's um, demands. That he's a lifelong Conservative voter, voted Remain, doesn't want Brexit to happen, doesn't want another referendum, so maybe he should vote for the Lib Dems. But he thinks, although he doesn't want Brexit to happen, he thinks it should be respected. What to do, Katie? <laughs> Go on holiday. Um, offer your services to Prince Andrew, someone that can <laughs> solve any dilemma. I, I think that quite possibly, the one thing I would say is that since taking over, taking office, Boris Johnson has surprised people. They thought he was going to play to the ERG and, you know, get rid of all these people and going to be, you know, stay to the right of the party. And yet they've forgotten his time as London mayor. And so, which was quite a liberal you know, position. He stood up for the bankers when nobody else was going to. Uh, he spoke out in various different ways which surprised people. So I actually think that the manifesto reflects more of what we saw as London Mayor than the Boris that I thought was taking over number 10 and was a little bit worried about in terms of... You well, know, also, the, the I mean, the reshuffle was not Liberal London Boris Johnson. It was, a, it was an election reshuffle to win the country and they thought they chose people they thought were appealing, apart from lovely Jacob, who has not been seen since. Jacob's um, not been seen since. Priti Patel hasn't been let out a huge amount. Well, she polls quite well, actually. She? she does poll quite well. Um, Even when she's saying poverty is not the government's and order and fault. things like that. Well, you know, I don't choose uh, who they put out on the media. But um, <laughs> I, I do think, though, that uh, Boris has got tendencies, as I've written in Sunday Times, to surprise people, to, you know, to do things that aren't quite, you know, very early on decided that he would do something different on student visas in a way that Theresa May refused to do the whole time that she was Prime Minister. Did the world, you know, fall in? No. It's been quite straightforward. Now, hopefully, students will think there is an opportunity to work here and create wealth once they finish their studies. That's something I think we should welcome. Now, Matt, there'll be quite a lot of people like Peter who don't fit into the normal box. You know, when we're looking at polls and we can see, well, people have moved from that block to that block and we assume we know why they've done that there will be people who are in a right pickle about who to vote for in this election who who may well vote lib dem despite fundamentally disagreeing with their flagship brexit policy but maybe it's because they don't like the others or they might want to stop brexit but then they don't they think it's anti-democratic to vote lib dem so it's quite difficult isn't it to capture all of that in essentially sort of take numbers on a spreadsheet yeah absolutely and and the first thing to say about people who don't have views that sit into a neat, tidy ideological box is that there are actually quite a lot of them. There are people uh, who in 2050 switch between Greens and UKIP. There are people who switch between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. You know, that that sort of, I guess, views and political um, positions that are not... Um, to, to, to someone that pays a lot of attention to politics would seem incoherent. But the majority of people don't pay that much attention to politics. And so in, in, in many, many cases, um, including this one, there, there will be a lot of people for whom there are a lot of conflicting dynamics at play. It, it's the reason why I've been looking at this election and, and, and saying it, it does seem quite volatile under the surface. The number of people that are actually telling pollsters, I, I don't know who I'm going to vote for, is not particularly high. It's in the it's in the mid-teens in most polls. I mean, that's pretty normal. But the number of people that might actually switch around between parties, I, I think, is um, is relatively high, and, and I suspect that's the reason. OK, I'm not sure we've helped at all, Peter, uh, but uh, other than established, there might be lots of other people in a similar pickle to you. Uh, let's move on, though. This is a question from John Trainer. This is probably slightly treasonous, but what would happen if the Queen were to become seriously ill or, heaven forbid, died for the general election? I assume campaigning will be suspended, but 
Is there any legal way of cancelling the election in those circumstances? Constitutional expert Henry Zeffman. I don't assume that mantle for myself. Seriously ill, I suspect things would just go on uh, as normal. I mean, I think it's quite plausible we wouldn't know if she were that seriously ill. If she dies, there's actually quite a precise bit of parliamentary choreography which is meant to happen when Parliament is sitting, which is that... MPs get together, perhaps even within hours of the announcement, and there are tributes led by the Prime Minister in the House of Commons. Also, Parliament, the Palace of Westminster, uh, is a key part of the uh, state choreography. So I think there's a lying in state in Westminster Hall, uh, and, you know, therefore queues all around the block in Westminster and all sorts. But... Parliament can't be recalled during a general election because there are no MPs. You'll notice when you're reading your copies of The Times every day that we refer to, say, Jess Phillips as the Labour candidate for Birmingham Yardley rather than the Labour MP for Birmingham Yardley because that is the status that she has at the moment. So, as I understand it, Parliament can't be recalled when it is in a state of dissolution rather than in recess. So I think... You know, Boris Johnson would have to do his tributes in sombre suit and uh, sombre face uh, outside Downing Street, but not at the dispatch box of the House of Commons and likewise Jeremy Corbyn and likewise Joe Swinson and so on. But yeah, clearly it would wreak havoc in terms of campaigning grids because, yes, of course, they would have to suspend campaigning for some period of time. And also, even once they resume campaigning, there is no way anyone in the country would be or many people in the country would be anywhere near as interested in the election as, as they would be in the death of the Queen. It would also be quite complicated in terms of where the Queen would be should she pass away and I even think discussing it is outrageous because in my opinion she's going to live forever. Um, well, don't blame me, blame John Trainer. Yeah, John. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, say she passed away in Scotland, for example, um, her body would be brought back to London and probably brought back by train and therefore... Um, you're going to have people that might have gone along to an election rally who have absolutely no interest in an election rally because there's a train down the road where they're going to go and look, pay their tributes and, and respects. So I think it would be very, very different should something like that happen and would absolutely change things. And also, you know, I remember being at number 10, Theresa May's black suit would go with us wherever we went uh, in case there was announcements such as this. And so you carry a black suit all the time? Yeah, it, it not not just if you're going to go and visit something in London or Norfolk or whatever but if you're travelling abroad there's always an outfit which is suitable for um, something like that and um, not not necessarily Queen but just generally you know if there is well as we saw actually during the last election campaign toe attacks exactly things like that and um, I always used to say you just don't want that on your watch you just don't want that on your watch because if it's the wrong facial expression, if it's the wrong words used, it would absolutely knock tens of points off of any poll aid. So I, I should imagine they're sitting there hoping they can get through the next few weeks without anything like that. Well, all being well, there was an entirely hypothetical question from John, uh, which I think we've explained the constitutional um, position. Uh, anyway, okay, I think we've probably got time for a couple more questions. This is from Tess Wright from Boyce and Edmonds. Um, I would like to know how the Brexit party can actually be a company rather than the political party um, with Chairman Richard Tice and Chief Executive Nigel Farage and what's happening to the money that they've raised from candidates and from charging at their meetings? 
So as we, as we understand it, it is actually now a political... It began life as a company, uh, but it now it is a political party and it has to declare its income and all that sort of thing through the Electoral Commission. I don't necessarily know the details behind exactly what roles people have and how it's set up, but what I do know is that they will be faced with the same rules and regulations as any political party in this election. And afterwards, journalists like yourselves will be crawling over any uh, spending limits or where the donations came from, how they were spent... And they won't necessarily have the machine. You know, we looked at it a couple of years ago, even the Conservative Party got caught out by getting it wrong. And the rules have been changed since then to tighten them even further. I can just see a time when this election is over and the next couple of months, Brexit parties, finances get pulled apart. And we see really that, that you know, the rules didn't really apply to some of their candidates. You know, I'm, it's just a guess, but I should imagine that. And actually, we'll find that situation as out. Tess was alluding to there, when the candidates who'd put their names down to stand in all the seats which they then withdrew from, some of them had paid money to do that and they're not getting the money back. And they were very, some of them were very cross about that. Matt, while we're talking about the Brexit party, what impact are they having? It, it seems as if Nigel Farage is sort of struggling to maintain cut through. And if it only really exists as a vehicle in people's minds, of, it, it is essentially Nigel Farage. If he's not in the news, it hits their poll ratings. Well, it has been squeezed. Obviously, the fact that they are, and pollsters now, nearly all taking account of the fact that they're not standing everywhere so most polls have them on about three percent from the 270 odd seats that they're standing in so that would be equivalent if they were standing in all of the seats you'd think that they would probably be on maybe seven percent certainly in the highest single digits so they have been squeezed since the uh, since since standing down not not just because of um, mathematically are standing down but also being squeezed and I, I think part of that is uh, what Henry was talking about with the political impact and the, the sort of the, the effect it has on the, the psychology of people that might be minded to, to vote for them but they haven't been squeezed to zero they're certainly they're still there they're certainly still there and, yeah. and will have an impact in a number of seats okay finally a great question this is emailed in by Julian Hill rosettes he says why do candidates wear them how did this tradition start are there rosette manufacturers that stay dormant without any business in between political events some candidates seem to go gangbusters with rosettes either wearing multiple ones or massive ones now, including Alan Howling Lord Hope, who I interviewed on the podcast on uh, Friday, who turned up wearing an enormous sort of, it looked like a sort of road sign sized uh, rosette. I've looked into this a bit. There are, there are companies that spend most of their time making rosettes for sort of horses and cattle and that sort of thing, who who gear up for uh, general elections when they need to, producing something like 50,000 in a few weeks for a general election. Oh, you know, I did the history on rosettes. You're not interested in the history at all. There you go. So. Have, you, have you got the history of rosettes? Well, they move from flags to ribbons to then sashes and then rosettes, you see. So well, there we are. Suffragettes, and you, you wouldn't have seen rosettes necessarily on suffragettes, but uh, you would have seen, seen ribbons and things and, and um, sashes. But um, stop being boring, Katie. Um, okay, so shall I tell my rosette Yeah, go story? on then. What's your okay. rosette? Let's finish with the rosette story. Many, many moons ago at Tory HQ, um, I walked in with my colleague Joe and we were told by Amanda Platel, who was our boss at the time, that we had one task that day and that was to stop Anne Widdicombe wearing a massive blue uh, shiny rosette which was perched right on her ample bosom and it kind of arrived about three minutes before she did <laughs> and that was the, the task was just make her stop wearing it you have to make her stop wearing it so we removed it for photos and then we lost it and then she'd have a go at us and then go and find another one and then we managed to take it off and then she had her hair done and anyway we, we lost it and then she went and go and find another one and she was absolutely re- refusing to stop wearing this rosette and in the end we had to have this kind of conversation with her which was we don't think it's a very good idea. We don't like it. We think it's old-fashioned. It's not very modern. Um, she didn't, you know, buy any of that. And in the end, we finally made her um, agree to drop the rosette because we went out and bought 
a blue kind of rose pin which we used in said uh, which i think was from a hairband and we just ripped off the top there's like a <laughs> pin on it and said you wear that instead and people will know you're conservative they'll know that you're you know canvassing on their behalf but you won't be so you know rose won't be kind of so there and so obvious i mean you know, if, I, if I've ever been canvassing in the past, I refuse to wear a blue rosé. I just won't do it. You know, you, you walk up someone's driveway, they, the curtains twitch, one look, they see the blue, blue rosé and there is absolutely no way in hell's chance they're going to open the front door. Is that because it's a blue rosé or because it's a rosé at all? I just think it's a rosé. Yeah. I just think they're awful. I think they're, you know, outdated nonsense. And what, it's, what it is good for is if you're doing a walkabout, a big walkabout, the blue makes it very clear that the Conservative Party are in town and they come to speak to you. And I understand that. I just don't like the rosé in in itself but you've always got a lover in Anne Widdicombe she's probably <laughs> buying 50,000 of those on her own well I must admit this morning I've been digging right around in the history of rosettes and the, the, there's an awful lot of information about the different sorts of pleats that you can have around your rosette that the you size of your bag, I don't, I don't know exactly. but just try to do a listener service and answer, answer as many questions as we can I think we've answered quite a few there we've probably run out of time now though. if you uh, don't yet subscribe to the podcast you should because uh, tomorrow night Wednesday night we will bring you the results of the first YouGov of MRP modelling. Remember, they, they shocked everyone when they predicted a hung parliament in 2017. They are doing it for the first time, and we'll, we'll be chatting with Chris Curtis from YouGov about those results. And that podcast will drop at 10 o'clock when the results do on Wednesday night, and there'll be another episode on Friday. We're spoiling you this week. Get in touch with any other questions, redbox.thetimes.co.uk. Uh, sign up to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. But for now, my thanks to Henry Zeffman, Katie Payer, and Matt Singh. For me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.